I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, February 13th, 2012. See if I remember how to do a program here. Took a little bit of time off and then I got sick. Uh, The good news is I feel human today. Don't ask me what I felt like just two days ago. It wasn't human. Kind of like death warmed over or something like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of really crazy, weird things being said in the name of God out there. And um, the worst part is is that uh, these are from churches that are supposed to be Christian churches. Uh, well, that should know better. And what do I mean by that? Is, is what they're, Well, they're twisting God's Word. They're engaging in, um, in biblical... Um, obfuscation, uh, engaging in, uh, well, using tactics that just don't uh, apply if you're going to be engaging in sound biblical doctrine. Uh, Yeah, it's not, Christianity, when it comes to reading the Bible, it's not about reading uh, the Bible and saying, well, what does this passage mean to me? Uh, That actually doesn't, that that statement has no meaning whatsoever. And uh, the question is, when you're reading a biblical passage, is what did God the Holy Spirit intend to communicate in that particular passage and, uh, and want us to understand, to know, to believe, or even to do? You see, a lot of times people err by pitting sound doctrine against sound practice. Okay, let me give you just a simple example of this. Okay, in uh, the liberal mainline denominational churches, you know, you think of like the Presbyterian Church USA or the uh, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, they've, uh, they, well, they're um, ordaining, practicing homosexuals, people who, uh, who well, uh, who are sinning sexually, okay? 
And I mean, quite frankly, there's no difference between practicing a uh, or uh, to ordaining a practicing homosexual as there would be to uh, ordaining somebody who is uh, currently uh, openly involved in an adulterous affair. And we see, the idea here is is that the Bible prohibits such behavior. This is immoral. It's contrary to what God has revealed for us when it comes to uh, sexual behavior. So the idea then is is that Christians uh, are not people who celebrate or condone uh, immoral behavior, but we understand that we are saved by Jesus Christ's shed blood on the cross. We are called to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins, and uh, and and then to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. So we, we all understand that somebody who is lying, somebody who is cheating, somebody who is uh, openly worshiping an idol, or somebody who's engaging in sexual behavior that is forbidden by Scripture, that that person is sinning. And those People are not fit for ministerial office. Uh, in fact, it, in a case where you've got somebody who's committing a sin and they're confronted with their sin, they're called to repent and to be forgiven. If they won't repent, then the church must discipline them and uh, either uh, you know confront them to the point where they uh, they repent or put them out of the congregation. This is what happens. So the idea is we're all familiar with this, these these concepts. I mean, somebody who is, uh, 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 you know, well, let me give another example. Uh, do you know anybody out there who claims to be, you know, I'm a, a, a blood-bought conservative evangelical Christian. Well, what do you do for a living? Oh, well, I rob banks. You rob banks for a living. Oh, yeah, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, style. I mean, you know, we uh, we spend weeks, you know, casing, you know, particular joints, you know, banks, establishments, you know, check out the different escape routes, really work on good disguises and uh, make sure that uh, all of our weaponry is intimidating and stuff like that. Really? So so you uh, you rob banks for a living. Oh, yeah. And, and you go to church every Sunday. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So we all understand that. That there is a behavioral aspect that uh, that bearing fruit in keeping with repentance involves something to do with um, not using uh, the shed blood of Christ as a license to sin. Instead, uh, understanding that it's Christ's shed blood on the cross that redeemed us from the consequences of our sin, that uh, bought us back from sin, death, and the devil. And so we're not set free to sin. In fact, sin is slavery. So we're set free from it. We all get that. So there's the behavior part is, well, uh, understandably easy to comprehend. However, there's another piece of all of this, and that is sound doctrine and practice. And many times what people do is they somehow highlight the behavior piece, okay, which is, well, really easy to get. I mean, but what they do is they underplay or un uh, they, they don't emphasize the importance of sound doctrine. Just like there's no such thing as a Christian, somebody who is a, you know, a Christian who also is a bank robber for a living, uh, you understand what I'm saying? At the same time, there's no such thing as a Christian who makes a living by preaching and teaching false doctrine, misapplying God's word. And and just because a church has an orthodox uh, sounding or orthodox 
uh, statement of belief posted on their website is not the proof as to whether or not they're really teaching and believing sound biblical doctrine. One of the things I find fascinating, absolutely fascinating, is when you critique somebody like a Stephen Furtick or a Perry Noble, they are quick to point out the fact that they believe the gospel. They believe they're... They're Trinitarians. They believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. You put an orthodox uh, confession of uh, of beliefs in front of them, they'd probably sign it without even a you know so much as a blush. But then the weird thing happens: they don't preach it, they don't teach it, and you know, and uh, instead, what they teach regarding God's word is it's it's criminal. Uh, is is the best way to put it. They they manipulate texts. They allegorize passages. They take descriptive texts and turn them into prescriptive texts. They read themselves into every character in the Bible, including Jesus Christ. Um, and as a result of it, they're not teaching sound doctrine. So it's the idea is is that a Christian pastor is called to rightly handle God's word and to preach sound doctrine and sound practice. A pastor who is winking at and not confronting open sinners in their congregation, uh, people who are practicing bank robbery or immoral sexual behavior, um, is just as, well, dangerous as a pastor who, even though he may be not, you know, towing the line uh, regarding the, you know, behavioral sins, um, is 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 actually doing just as much damage by teaching false doctrine. You get what I'm saying? So it's not an either-or proposition. Your pastor doesn't get the right to sit there and go, well, you know what, I, I don't really care about sound biblical doctrine. I don't care. You know, this idea about original sin and whether we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and that whole modalistic heresy thing or and, you know, the Trinity and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, sure, they have some value, but, yeah, we're, we're going to emphasize the more important things. It doesn't work that way. The reality is is that doctrine and life are both equally weighted and important, and the job of a pastor is to teach that which is in accord with sound biblical doctrine, with what God has revealed about himself, to protect God's sheep not only from egregious, gross, open sins of the flesh, but also egregious and gross idolatries, Uh, because that's ultimately what false doctrine is. It is a rampant um, disease, if you would. Uh, you know, one of those. It's a it's a biological agent, a, a, an epidemic, if you would, of idolatry. Idolatry is basically making a god in your own image, and so the idea is is that God's word transforms our minds and takes thoughts captive. We're not just talking about. Uh, thoughts that have to do with the sins of the flesh, but also have to do with that breaking of the first commandment that says you will have no other gods before me. And because each and every one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God, when we are brought into the church, we are tempted with all kinds of sins sins of the flesh, as well as idolatrous sins of crafting a God in our own image. And one of the, one of the classic statements that people make is that statement that says, well, the God I believe in would never do X, Y, or Z. Hmm, maybe the God you believe in doesn't exist. 
maybe the God you believe in is really a God of your own making, a God crafted in your own image. Uh, but you just haven't been, uh, well, let's say forthright enough to go and grab a hunk of uh, stone and carve your God into an image that you worship. Instead, you keep him as more of an abstract concept, or even worse, you attribute to your God the name Jesus, so that, uh, you know, in order to hide the reality that the God that you believe in is not really the God who exists, the God who's revealed himself in Scripture, but a God of your own making. So when we deal with you know, the sin uh, the sin of idolatry in the form of the Pelagian heresy, the Pelagian heresy denies and attacks what God has revealed about man's fallen and sinful nature, that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. The Pelagian heresy teaches that, well, we're not dead in trespasses and sins. We may be wounded, or may, we may even be actually basically good people. Uh, the the job then of uh, of Christian preaching in the Pelagian heresy is to convince people to uh, to do things God's way kind of thing, but that's not the same thing as preaching the gospel to sinners who are born dead in trespasses and sins and whose wills are bound bound by their sinful nature to sin, death, and the devil and cannot come to God. God has to regenerate. So you got that's the Pelagian heresy, or you could modalism. Modalism denies what God has revealed about Himself in His Word and and through His deeds in history that He is three and one, that He is the one true God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So modalism is uh, worships a an idol, a, an idol that uses all of the biblical language about who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the meanings are different than what God has revealed about himself. And so the idea of looking for false doctrine requires somebody to listen carefully, to listen carefully to what the pastor is preaching, to have an open Bible, to make sure that what is being said is what that passage intended to say and mean and points us to, well, to the real God, the one who really is there, not a God of our own making, not a God that is culturally constructed, not a God that uh, has the rough edges cut off of him the, 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 or the offensive stuff uh, omitted, but instead the God who is there, who has revealed himself in scripture and the job of the pastor is to preach that one true God and the full counsel of God's word. Otherwise, he's not really helping people. He's keeping them bound in their sins. All right, so here's the deal. I, I, I'm back today. I, 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 hopefully, it's it's going to take me a couple of days to kind of get the pipeline full again. But, I, you know, I, at the end of, uh, not last week, but the week before, end of the week before, I mean, I... I came limping in uh, literally about three weeks without a without a day off with the Code Orange revival and then you know and then turning around with the Elephant Room conference and and all the weird stuff going on with that uh, you know I just I, I just needed some downtime so I took a few days off uh, spent some time with some uh, pastor friends of mine um, and then I probably probably came down with a head cold which was miserable just absolutely miserable. And uh, and so uh, back in the saddle today, and it you know I can't say I'm quite comfortable uh, <clears throat> behind the microphone today. It's just, it just give me a couple of days. I, I'll I'll, I'll rehit my stride. And it's so funny, you know, going getting back into my routine. It was just wonderful, absolutely. 
absolutely wonderful. And uh, and uh, I, there's a few things that uh, I'm actually a little bit behind on, and uh, and I and I need to uh, bring you up to speed on. And that is is that uh, those of you who live in North Dakota and Northern Minnesota, uh, out you know out near the uh, the North Dakota border, um, in uh, March uh, next month. March 10th and March 11th, I'm going to be uh, uh, giving a, um, a, a a couple of days of lectures uh, uh, on uh, biblical discernment about separating the wheat from the chaff, and I'm going to be speaking at uh, Kongsvinger uh, uh, Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. And uh, the, the, in fact, uh, uh, one of their elders there is going to be, uh, they're, they're flying me out, and I'm going to be doing a series of lectures uh, March 10th and March 11th. Um, you know, session number one is how do we know the Bible's God's word? Uh, session two, how to make sense of the Bible. Uh, look at the church fathers and uh, what's called the rule of faith um, and, and, and its importance in understanding the Bible. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lecture on post-modernity and uh, the cultural assumptions that challenge a biblical worldview. And uh, and then I'm also going to be doing a session on uh, talking about today's super apostles and how they're undermining the Christian faith. And so if um, if you would like to uh, be in attendance at this event, uh, you can uh, register at kongsvingerchurch.org. That's K-O-N-G-V-I-N-G-E-R church.org. And, uh, and I think the, uh, the, uh, it's at, uh, they have an events page, events.htm. And, uh, in fact, let me pull this up on the website. So, you know, I, I wanted to start getting the word out there if you would like to uh, spend a little bit of time in the early part of March in northern Minnesota and uh and uh, north dakota uh, cuz cuz you know none of the churches out in miami are inviting me <laughs> i just i'm i'm it, 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 what's funny is i was asking uh, the the gentleman uh, who i i've been working with don you know what 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 to expect weather wise um you know if you know that time in march he said well it could be uh, warm weather, spring-like conditions, you know, highs in the 50s, or it could be a blizzard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you, <laughs> so if you would, uh, if you would like to attend, I'd love to have you all come out and, uh, you know, out to Oslo, Minnesota, at, at Kongsvinger Church out there in Oslo, uh, Minnesota, Ed, Ed just would love to have you. So I, I, I wanted to you know begin to promote that event, so to let you all know that that's coming up. Okay, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start off with a third eagle of the apocalypse update. Uh, that would be uh, William Tapley. It's been a while since we've uh, heard from William Tapley, and he's been working through a series of... Um, um, that he's, <laughs> uh, well, I, maybe it's best just to let you hear it from him. He's been working through a series of um, prophecies uh, that are that were given in the 19th century uh, at La Salette. And uh, so we're going to be listening to the latest installment on these La Salette prophecies, uh, where he's going to talk to us about the birth of the Antichrist. And so we're, we're going to uh, listen in to... Um, the third eagle of the apocalypse. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the upcoming conferences. Uh, you, you know, the Code Orange Revival, uh, at least some of the speakers from the Code Orange Revival, are showing up 
on the uh, the speaking docket at uh, at other conferences around the globe. Uh, um, notably, uh, the one conference coming up, you got Brian Houston, Ed Young, Christine Kane, um, James McDonald, and and others uh, are going to be at this one conference that's uh, starting shortly. It's it's as if the uh, the Heresy Olympics uh, has decided to go on the road. So we'll, we'll just make a note of that today. Um, there's a um, um, I don't know. You remember we talked about uh, King Eddie Long and him being crowned king uh, by Rabbi Messer. Well, uh, a story broke in uh, Florida that uh, that Rabbi Messer had intended to do a similar ceremony with Paula White. And uh, the question was whether or not she was going to be crowned queen. And um, and it, it created a little bit of a brouhaha and a kerfuffle. Uh, one of my favorite words I've stolen from Team Pyro. But, um, and, uh, and well, um, <laughs> let's just put it this way. Um, this, is, this led to a video surfacing on the Internet of Paula White being wrapped in a Torah scroll, uh, Eddie Long style, and now Paula White has apologized to um, to a rabbi in Florida about the scroll wrapping that took place, and and has flat out denied that she was crowned queen. Um, that's going on. We've got so we're going to talk about that. I got the pyromaniacs piece that I didn't get to last week from Dan Phillips entitled about any claim of a word from God. Um, and I wanted to read that. And then, uh, there is a, a story that is worth noting. Uh, this is, uh, if you, uh, read the world, uh, magazine website, worldmag.com, um, there's, there's a growing controversy in uh, Pakistan. Uh, the Wycliffe Bible translators out there have put out a translation of the Gospel of Matthew that um, for, the only way to describe it is purposely mistranslates uh, the uh, Gospel of Matthew wherever Jesus is referred to as the Weos Tutheu, the uh, Son of God. Uh, they're not calling him the Son of God. And this has caused, uh, uh, some people are calling it uh, Wycliffe Gate. And so we're going to take a look at that. And then in hour number two, uh, during our sermon review time, I'm going to be reviewing a, a recent sermon from a Calvary chapel uh, where, well, let's just say that there's some weird stuff going on in this one. But this is another one of those uh, sermons that the reason why I'm playing it is not necessarily about learning how to listen carefully for uh, for whether or not the person is rightly handling God's word. But uh, but uh, this one is one of those ones that kind of is a nuts and bolts type of sermon. It's a vision casting sermon uh, uh, by uh, Bob uh, uh, Giglioni um, from Calvary Chapel in Delaware County, and um, yeah, this, so this is a vision casting sermon. I don't know if we're going to listen to the entire thing. We'll probably listen to about uh, you know maybe seventy to eighty percent of it. But uh, the reason I'm I'm playing it is because um, this is one of those nuts and bolts sermons that gives us the ability to look behind uh, the uh, the facade, if you would, to see how the wheels are spinning in seeker-driven churches. Uh, vision casting being an important thing that they do there. So uh, 
uh, you know, keep that in mind. So that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm already long-winded in describing what we're going to do on today's program and talking, you know, kind of catching up on some other things. Uh, but with that, it's uh, it's time for our William Tapley update. Yeah, <clears throat> end of the world as we know it. Okay, so um, those of you who are new to the program, uh, I, I need to introduce this gentleman. Uh, his name is William Tapley. He uh, believes that he has heard directly from God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit has revealed to him uh, that he is the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. Um, it, it's a little convoluted as to who he's co-profiting with, but because he always appears in his videos well by himself, and he's become a regular here at uh, at Fighting for the Faith, and there's a reason for that, and this is the this is the reason why. Okay, um, somebody like William Tapley, okay, it's clear that the guy thinks he's hearing from God, um, but it's there's well, it's pretty clear that there's something that ain't right there. Um, you know, he's he's self deluded. Easy to spot. He's not. He's not a multimillionaire. He doesn't. Uh, you know. He doesn't sell out. You know. Five thousand uh, seat arena when he uh, when he's scheduled to speak or anything like that. He doesn't have the delivery skills of somebody like a TD Jakes, um, and he doesn't have the multi million dollar budget of somebody like Patricia King. But he suffers from the same problem, from the same delusion, and that is that he thinks he's hearing directly from God. Speaking to him, you know, and and cracking uh, codes and helping him get an inside track to information regarding the end of the world and the eschaton, um, but he's not. But so here's the idea: is is that uh, when, when you all go to get uh, your, your booster shots, when you go and you, know, you get immunized, you know, you know, let's say you go, in, you know, every year in the fall, you go to you know CVS or Walgreens, and you, and you know, you go and you get your flu shot. Well, what what the flu shot is is well it's the flu um but the flu it's weakened it's in a state where it's um it's not going to overpower your immune system as a result of it you're able to build up antibodies and you can fight the thing off william tapley's kind of like that he's kind of like um a, an enthusiasm's um uh, flu shot and when if you're going enthusiasm yeah, that's the, uh, the theological term historically that we're referring uh, to here. It's not enthusiasm like rah, rah, siskumba. It's enthusiasm, this idea that uh, enthusiasm is that God withinism, that apparently God is speaking directly to you without his word. Um, you know, and 
And uh, it, it always creates problems. It always, always, always creates problems. But uh, here's William Tapley discussing um, the birth of the Antichrist and his inside track information regarding the La Salette prophecies. Uh, here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. This is the sixth part in my series on the amazing prophecies which the Blessed Mother gave to two shepherd children at La Salette, France. The Blessed Mother would be the um, the Virgin Mary. This is a Marian apparition slash prophecy. Do you see any problems here yet? Back in 1846. And so far we have discovered that in order to understand the chronology of the La Salette prophecies, you have to break it down into seven different sections. Now, each of the first four sections... Yeah, that's what I was doing wrong. I was always breaking those prophecies down into four sections rather than seven. Huh, that, ah, now I get it. Mary herself indicated the beginning of each section by giving us a particular year. Part one began with the year 1858. Part two, 1859. Part three, 1864. Part 4, 1865, and Part 5 we had to calculate from the information which Mary gave us. In other words, we discovered that you had to add 25 years of harvest to the date Mary gave the prophecy, which was in 1846, and therefore we found that that section began with the year 1870. And now we're... You know, and if you find yourself in Atlantis, just, you know, and, and you're trying to, you know, crack the code of Nurab Sal, make sure that you take into consideration, well, you know, the tenfold error. Up to the sixth section, and that is the birth of the Antichrist. And we cannot figure out exactly that year, at least I don't know now, maybe some of you in the audience know who the Antichrist is, I don't know yet. But Mary says that that is the date of the beginning of part number six. And I call this section the birth of the Antichrist. And Mary says it will be during this time that the Antichrist will be born of a Hebrew nun. And I put down here 1945 to 2001 as being this time. The reason I have determined that the phrase this time refers to the years following World War II is because that is the last time period which Mary was talking about in the fifth section of these La Salette prophecies. Mm -hmm. She called it the false peace. In other words, the Antichrist was undoubtedly born sometime between 1970 and 1990. Therefore, this section does have a definite year at the beginning. It's just that we cannot determine what that year is at this time. Now, please note also that Mary refers to the mother of the Antichrist as a Hebrew nun. And this is consistent with what many Bible scholars believe, and that is that the Antichrist will be descended from the tribe of Dan. And the reason they believe this is because St. John leaves the tribe of Dan out of the 12 tribes when he is referring to the 144,000 remnant Jews who will be saved out of the nation of Israel. And now, now are y'all taking notes on this? Now you're sitting on what is he t 
talking about? Well, this is apparently a direct vision given to some farm kids in La Salette um, in the 19th century directly from the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. Y'all seen what the problem is yet? Um, and by the way, um, what I find interesting is, is that um, many evangelicals would easily spot the problem here, and that is, is that, oh, wait a second, this idea that the Virgin Mary is appearing and giving, you know, you know, direct revelations and prophecies and stuff like that. I mean, this this flies in the face of Scripture. Yes, it does. It flies directly in the face of Scripture. And, and the prophecies were given to people within a church, the Roman Catholic Church, that has anathematized the biblical gospel. In other words, they're an apostate, um, counterfeit form of Christianity with all kinds of weird things like prayer to the saints, the rosary. I mean, have you ever, have you ever, uh, tried praying the Lord's Prayer with a, a Catholic friend? Just when you think it's supposed to end, they, they launch into a Hail Mary full of grace. And, you know, okay, so there's all kinds of weird stuff that's just, you know, tacked onto here. It's just become this hodgepodge of all these strange ideas. But here's the funny thing. It's easy to spot in Roman Catholicism, isn't it? Why aren't you spotting it in, in American evangelicalism? You know, how is praying to the saints any different than praying a sun stand still prayer? Hmm. How is praying to the Virgin Mary any different than praying a circle maker prayer based upon the legend of Honey, the circle maker? I don't see a qualitative difference between those two concepts at all. None of it's taught in the Bible. We continue. Now Mary continues talking about this mother of the Antichrist, a false virgin who will communicate with the old serpent. Now Mary does not say have intercourse with but there is definitely an intimate connection between this false virgin who will bring forth the Antichrist and the devil. And Mary continues, The master of impurity, his father will be E.V. Now the French, E.V., I'm not sure what that stands for. Of course, in the English, it could be evil. And perhaps this indicates that he will have a natural father, and the Antichrist's natural father will somehow be associated with the letters EV. At birth, he will spew out blasphemy. Could the Antichrist be a test tube baby? The first test tube baby, Louise Brown, was born about this time in 1978. He will have teeth. In a word, he will be the devil incarnate. In other words, Satan is trying to imitate God. He will scream horribly. He will perform wonders. He will feed on nothing but impurity. He will have brothers who, although not devils incarnate like him, will be children of evil. I believe Mary is referring here to the ten kings of the Antichrist. At the age of 12, they will draw attention upon themselves. Now, 12 in this case does not mean that all of the kings of the Antichrist reach the age of 12 at the same time. This is a symbolic number. And it refers to the midnight, or the second half of the Great Tribulation, the end of times. I would like to interject here a commentary on this twelfth hour. I'm beginning to see that it refers to the second half of the Tribulation. Can I point out the other obvious problem here? <clears throat> what on earth does any of this have to do 
with proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins and teaching sound biblical doctrine. Now, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that over the weekend I sent out a, you know, a tweet basically to the effect of this, that there is more than one way. In fact, there are two primary ways to uh, attack sound biblical doctrine within the church. The first way is to do it directly. Okay, if you've ever spent time in a mainline liberal denomination, then what you then you will know that they they spend an inordinate amount of time preaching and teaching directly against sound biblical doctrine. They'll say things like, "Here, the Bible says that Jesus really rose from the grave bodily." Well, we know this can't be true because of X, Y, and Z. You know, dead people just don't rise. Stuff like that. This is this is a common thing that occurs in mainline liberal denominations. Okay attacking sound doctrine directly. Another example of this would be at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, the gospel itself, was anathematized by the Roman Catholic Church. That is a direct attack against sound doctrine. Okay, There is another tactic, and here it is. And this is what's kind of going on here, and you, you just you, you need to know how to spot it. This one is harder to detect because it's not a direct assault against sound doctrine. Instead, Sound doctrine, well, it just never really comes up. Um, you're too busy and distracted, well, teaching other things. Um, so the idea is, is that sound doctrine is attacked by omission. Omission. And what that means is, is that, well, it's just mysteriously missing. It's the thing that's gone, but no one talks about the fact that it's gone and it never gets preached or talked about because there's more important things to do, you know, teach about, well, you know, the La Salette prophecies, you know, Marian theology, um, uh, you know, sun stand still prayers, um, the circle maker, um, uh, the prayer of Jabez, how every day is a Friday, um, you know, how to have your best life now. It, see, what happens is in situations like this, uh, sound doctrine, it's not that it's overtly and directly denied it's just well so unimportant we got you know that it just never comes up and here yeah you know, william tapley i think models this perfectly this is a guy who is on uh, well almost a quixotic uh, adventure of misadventure a quixotic adventure to go and slay all of the different codes, uh, uh, the, every scrap of prophecy that he can get his hands on pertaining to the apocalypse, uh, the Antichrist, the leopard, the beast, the harlot, and all that kind of stuff. And, well, sad, because this is a guy who, well, you know, if you've seen any of his videos, then you know that he attends a small church, Roman Catholic church, in upstate New York, I mean, I'm sure he would confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but he's got more important things to do than teach the historic Orthodox Christian Catholic faith, Catholic small c. No, he's cracking all these codes. And see, this is one of the, the ways the devil works. The devil knows that those people who can't be convinced to deny sound doctrine directly can be distracted from teaching it and, well, find more important things to talk about than what Christ has called us to do. You get what I'm saying there? 
All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. I went way long on that first segment. Warning. Beware of people claiming to hear directly from God. If you want to hear from God, open your Bible. You can trust that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says, Join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And uh, what that does is, is that as our crew members grow, it, may, it basically gives us a base of money that we can work from on a monthly basis so that we can better budget and, uh, and manage uh, the resources that you make available to us to do what we do. And uh, and there's also perks to being a crew member. Um, you know, when we publish uh, books and make things available sp- specifically for our, uh, you know, you know, for the world, uh, many times uh, it's our crew members that have access to them at no additional cost. So uh, that's there. There are perks that go along with uh, crew membership. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. 4- Six zero three eight. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> real quick, I don't have any uh, music for this, but um, there, it's weird to me that, um, well, we're getting a slew of conferences uh, that are coming, kind of on the uh, the the in the wake of the Code Orange revival, and uh, notably, uh, there there's two in particular. Uh, one's called the One Conference. And uh, on the docket are guys like Brian Houston, Christine Kane, Ed Young, James McDonald, Greg Laurie, Miles McPherson. I mean, this is like a, a who's who in the seeker-driven movement. When Brian Houston and Christine Kane, they're not, they're also who's who in the Word of Faith Heresy uh, department. You know, Carl Lentz from Hillsong, New York. I, so. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know. We're kind of the same characters over and over again. These are like today's modern super apostles. But uh, the, the the one that I'll play a little bit of audio from that's coming up, uh, n- not too long from now, is entitled the uh, the Presence 2012 Conference, put on by C3. Let me read to you from their website. Presence is a time for a fresh anointing. Enlarged vision, amazing empowerment, and a time where we can take time and space to wait on God. I don't even know what this means. We believe that as we gather together at presence, the heavens will be opened over your life and you will experience 
a greater outpouring of his anointing, his blessing, his vision, and his miracles. What a privilege it is to come together over four days and unite in a time of phenomenal worship, incredible teaching, and powerful ministry featuring guests. Well, I won't list them out yet. So we look forward to joining you in our beautiful Darling Harbor at Presence 2012. This is at the Sydney Convention and Exhibit Center in Darling Harbor, Sydney, Australia. Okay, so the C3 Presence 2012 Conference. Okay, now just, I mean, without knowing who's going to be there. Okay, let's go back to the sentence. Presence is a time for a fresh anointing. Hmm, fresh anointing. What is that? What is a fresh anointing? What are they talking about? Where in the Bible does it talk about Christians receiving a, quote, fresh anointing? How about enlarged vision? I mean, listen, okay, th there are particular uh, parts of the human anatomy. If you were to you know, use the word enlarged in front of it, that would be bad, okay? For instance, if, so if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, ooh, I've got bad news for you, you have an enlarged heart, okay? That would be bad, okay? Um, or, you know, we, we're showing here signs of an enlarged, for you guys out there, an enlarged prostate, okay? That would be really bad, okay? So, um, but here we, here we got the, this conference being advertised as presence is a time for a fresh anointing. I don't know. I mean, do, do anointings have a, a shelf life? Do they grow stale? Um, you know, do you need fresh anointings on a regular? What is this talking about here? And then an, an enlarged vision. So you go to this presence conference and you're going to get an enlarged vision, an amazing empowerment, and a time where we can take time and space to wait on God. I don't even know what this means. I haven't pointed that out before. But uh, sentence number two. We believe that as we gather together at presence, the heavens will be opened over your life and you will experience a greater outpouring of his anointing, blessing, vision and miracles really so um the heavens opened over your life now by the way this is biblical language okay um you know in fact uh, one of the things i've been doing just in my personal daily devotional time is uh, i've been uh, translating the uh, the book of mark just you know i've been working my way through the book of mark and uh, a few days ago i was in mark chapter 1 and it was talking about John the Baptist, and there's this, I mean, in the Greek, it's wonderful. It talks about the uh, the heavens being torn apart, you know, they're torn open, if you would. And so this, this, this language here, the heavens being opened over your life, that sounds biblical, doesn't it? But the funny thing is, is that about the heavens being torn open, it has nothing to do with your life or mine. It has to do with the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one, at his baptism, the heavens were torn open. And the and the Holy Spirit descended on on him in the form of a dove, and the and the God the Father said, "This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." Right? Um. So weird. So I just find it odd that a Christian conference is claiming to you know for whatever the price of the admission is, I, I think it's like thirty nine bucks per day um, to attend. You know, for for just a mere 30, 40 bucks per night. I mean, keep in mind, in the United States, if you go to a movie, um, you, you uh, matinee price is what eight or ten bucks. You know, if you go during you know prime time, you can pay twelve, fifteen bucks for a movie. So, I mean, for twice what you would pay 
for you know a prime time movie ticket. Uh, you can attend the Presence Conference for an evening, and uh, you'll experience a fresh anointing, a large vision, amazing empowerment. The heavens will be opened over your life. You will experience a greater outpouring of his anointing, blessing, vision, and miracles. How How is it possible that a conference put on by Christians can make such claims? I mean... Where in the Bible does it promise any such things for conferences of this sort or even attending a church service or anything like that, right? Where? I mean, these are quite, quite, quite the claims. I mean, I'm wondering if you will have whiter teeth. Will you experience weight loss miracles? I, I'm curious as to whether or not the, the, the fresh anointing will also include maybe age reversal, Um you know, what kind of miracles are we talking about here? And I mean, all for a mere, you know, 39 something a night to attend. You, you get what I'm saying here? There's there's something like seriously, seriously off. Well, let me play the uh, the Vimeo video that, you know, that advertises this particular C3 2012 conference and see if, you know, this any of this makes sense here. I see the whole coastline of Australia, the east coast touched with a golden fire. Out of that fire, I see arrows shooting to the nations of the earth, one after the other, scores of arrows going out all over the world. God from heaven is about to send his spirit in a huge river. Okay, so by the way, the voice you're hearing is Phil Pringle of C3, and he's claiming that He's seeing a vision from God that God the Holy Spirit is going to, you know, show up and, you know, and like um, outpouring like you've never seen or heard before. I mean, never before in the history of the church has there been anything like this. They're going to be ground zero. The Presence 2012 conference is going to be ground zero for this amazing, miraculous thing. We'll flood the earth so we will find our nets will be breaking unlimited is going to touch lives everywhere through this earth. So, uh, I mean, unlimited power of heaven is going to touch lives everywhere throughout the whole earth because of this conference. You and I are called by God to carry that presence. Be cleansed by the Holy Spirit and let a power come upon you that will change this world. And allow the supernatural love of Jesus. Now, they're, they're showing little sound bites here of the, the people who will be speaking at this Presence 2012 conference. Phil Pringle, his wife, Chris Pringle. Jesus Christ, to transform us. There's a lost, broken, hurting, dying. And that would be Stephen Furtick. Desperate, sorry world without Christ. And the church is the change that the world is waiting for. We need men and women. And John Bevere, the husband of Lisa Bevere, of Lioness Arising. So there's your, your all-star lineup for the four nights there. Phil Pringle, Chris Pringle, Stephen Furtick, and John Bevere. And um, the, so we've heard him prophetically, you know, Phil Pringle prophetically utter that this is going to change the globe, an outpouring like you wouldn't believe. Remember, the heavens are going to be opened over your life. You will experience a greater outpouring of his anointing, blessing, vision, and miracles. Um. The term snake oil salesman comes to mind. The term, <laughs> these are people who are making merchandise of the people in the body of Christ. 
How much do you want to bet that not a single one of them will rightly handle God's word, correctly preach the gospel? If you know, we got a bunch of super apostles here who are really no apostles at all, uh, making claims that uh, you know that about God, the Holy Spirit, and what He's going to do for the people in attendance there that cannot be warranted at all from Scripture. How did Phil Pringle come to this conclusion about this amazing conference and that's a it impact that it's going to have on the world? Well, God, the Holy Spirit told him directly, right? Yeah, which then um, is a perfect transition to uh, what we need to do next here. From the Pyromaniacs blog, Dan Phillips has a couple of blog posts uh, entitled About Any Word from God. First one's basic considerations. Second is an application. Dan writes, he says, It is a central tenet of the Christian faith that there is such a thing as a word from God. You can see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ver, cha, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, Abraham received a vision. John 1, in the beginning was the word. Well, the word was with God. The word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14. Verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 34. Uh, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So without that assertion made, uh, without that assertion made and affirmed, there simply and literally is no Christian faith. See Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which also says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, uh, let's think through some questions about words from God. Number one. Does it change anything if there is a word from God? Does it change everything if there is a word from God? Does the Bible ever depict the arrival of a fresh word from God as intended to be welcomed as a casual business-as-usual affair? Is there a such thing as a word from God that is not inherently fully true and thus inerrant? Is there a such thing as a word from God that is not instantly, inherently, and absolutely morally binding? Even in the cases of words from God that do not direct me to do something, are they not still inherently and instantly and universally morally binding in that believers must affirm that they are God's words and must believe them? Does not the very existence of tests of prophecy, see Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 and following, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and following, uh, does not the very existence of tests of prophecy underscore the fact that if it is a word from God, all people are obliged to embrace it appropriately? If the elders of a local church knew of anyone in the congregation that was in rebellion against a word from God, either by refusing to do what the word said to do or refusing to believe that the word was God's word, would they not be obliged to confront and discipline that person and ultimately to expel him or her as an unbeliever absent repentance? And can a body of believers in the regular practice of disobeying, ignoring, or being ambivalent towards or about God's word without disastrous spiritual consequences. Can they do that without a consequence like that? Now, Dan then continues, 
There Now, I'll ask and answer two more questions. Say, isn't that an awfully basic list of awfully easy questions? Answer, well, in evangelicalism today, it should be, yes. Would to God that it were, but no, evidently it is not. And then the second question, are you going somewhere with this fella? I mean, to yes, probably on Thursday. So he asks a basic, a bunch of questions. Okay. So here's the concept. The concept is about any word from God. Now, remember, we just did the, uh, you know, the presence conference 2012 where <clears throat> Phil Pringle, his wife, Stephen Furtick and John Bevere are going to be speaking. And uh, what, are, what do they all have in common? They all claim to be receiving fresh visions and revelation from God, and they're claiming that if you attend the Presence 2012 conference there in Sydney Harbor, uh, that you know that God the Holy Spirit's going to show up like He's never shown up before, okay? And uh, the heavens are going to be opened over your life. You will experience a greater outpouring of His anointing, blessing, vision, and miracles. I mean, all this stuff is supposed to be taking place uh, there in uh, in Sydney Harbor, right? But Dan Phillips is asking some very good questions here because what these people all have in common is they claim to be receiving words from God. And the implications of whether or not you believe you're receiving direct words from God is really, really important. And so those nine questions kind of lay that out. But next is the second one that Dan wrote on this about any claim of a word from God in application. He continues... Uh, a few days later, Dan writes, he says, let me uh, make a step forward with the basic considerations we laid about any word from God a couple of posts ago. I'll take this as established, that there is no such thing as a word from God that is erroneous. If a word affirms error, it is not God who is speaking. Okay, And he cites as his source for this concept, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Or John chapter 17, verse 17, which says this, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Or Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So here's the idea. If there is somebody receiving direct revelation from God, a direct word from God, if it is truly from God, it is not erroneous because God does not lie. Next, there's no such thing as a word from God that is not absolutely morally binding. See Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 19, which says, And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And John chapter 15, verse 22 if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that they have, now they have no excuse for their sin. So this absolute obligation is all-encompassing. If God tells us to act or to refrain from acting, we must comply. If God tells us to think or to believe, we must agree. I sin equally if I fail to love my wife 
and if I fail to refrain from committing adultery, but I also sin if I do not believe that Christ is God and that he came in the flesh. Notice that in the list there, he lists moral behavior as well as doctrinal affirmation. So sad but true, I wish I could say that all professed Christians, myself included, get that in terms of accepting and embracing and practicing. It is with complete consistency regarding the Bible, sanctification is a process. But if I'd like to stir your pure minds to thought in another direction, take a hypothetical. Oh boy, I wish it were hypothetical, but let's put it as one. Hypothetically speaking, Brother X says that God told or God has called him to do why, which is not in any way directly stated or contained in Scripture. So that's the hypothetical situation. Brother X said that God told him or has called him to do why, which is not in any way directly stated or contained in Scripture. Dan then continues, now here are my questions, and I really would urge you to think hard about this. Picture me looking you straight in the eye and requiring you to lock gazes with me as I say very intently. Now, remember the the context. You know, Brother X just told you, God told me or has called me to do something, and that thing is not anywhere directly stated or implied or contained anywhere in Scripture. So Dan locks eyes with you, and he says, it is because of your failure to think through or our failure to think through the implications of such claims as these that accounts for a great deal of sloppiness and error in the professing church today. Right. How many times have you heard somebody, a, a pastor on Fighting for the Faith in a sermon review, claiming direct revelation from God? God has told us to do this. God has called us to do that. We have got to do this. We have got to do that, right? They are literally claiming to be receiving words from God. And if they are, then those words are morally binding on all of us. And they cannot be false at all. They have to be true. Okay. So then Dan finishes this post with two more questions. My questions are then, what absolute and immediate obligation does that put on every person who hears that assertion? And two, what must the consequences be for church discipline? Right. Anybody who's claiming direct revelation from God is claiming to be receiving prophecy that is immediately binding and obligatory on all people everywhere in the church, and that that then has consequences for church discipline. Now, Dan puts these questions out because he's trying to walk us through this, but I would like to point something out. We're going to be listening to, in just a few minutes, a vision-casting sermon from a seeker-driven Calvary Chapel congregation. Okay, The primary, primary keystone concept of all seeker-driven churches is this, that the pastor, via prayer and fasting and obedience to God, makes himself worthy to receive a direct vision from God as to the direction that God wants that particular congregation to go in and do. It impacts their methodology, their their structure, and their messages, okay? And the songs that they sing and the things that they do. 
And this is a direct vision that the pastor receives from God. And the job of the pastor is to cast that vision to his leadership team and to the congregation. And it is the job of the his leadership team and the congregation. They are obligated to make that vision become a reality. And in the seeker-driven congregations, there are severe consequences for anyone in these congregations who challenge or question the vision. They are treated as sinners. They are treated as wolves. They are treated as people who have to be put out of the congregation and called to repentance. In some cases, those who challenge the vision or challenge the pastor are literally ordered off the property and told that if they return, that they will have a restraining order filed against them. I've got so many emails to that effect sitting in my email box that I've received over the years. It's not even funny. So here, Dan, this is not a hypothetical thing that he's talking about here. These people are claiming to receive direct visions from God. It must be in the the inerrant word of God, and you're a sinner or a reprobate or an agent of Satan if you challenge the vision. That's absolutely how that plays out in practice. So I bring all that up because uh, in our sermon review, which we're going to be doing on the other end of this break, we're going to be listening to a seeker-driven pastor from the Calvary Chapel movement uh, do his annual vision-casting sermon. And it's important that you understand that behind all of that is an understanding that this pastor has received a direct vision from God, and he's recasting that vision, and the job of the people in his congregation is to make that vision come about. It is true. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, sermon review time.
slightly different format. Look at the bad and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Calvary Chapel of Delaware County in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. I'm going to mess this guy's name up, not on purpose, though. Pastor Bob uh, Guaglioni, or Guaglioni, presiding. The name of the sermon is 2020 Vision. This is not our standard fare here at Fighting for the Faith, but the reason I'm doing this sermon review is because of its importance. This gets you behind the facade so that you can see how important receiving direct revelation is from God to the seeker-driven pastors. They, that's the vision they receive, and this is him vision casting, casting the vision to his leadership team and to the people in the congregation so they understand their responsibility to make this vision come about. Now, as uh, we listen to the sermon, I think it's important for you to keep Dan Phillips's questions in front of you. Does it change anything if there is a word from God? Does it change everything if there is a word from God? Does the Bible ever depict the, the arrival of a fresh word from God as intended to be welcomed as a casual business-as-usual affair? Is there a such thing as a word from God that is not inherently and fully true and thus inerrant? Is there a such thing as a word from God that is not instantly, inherently, and absolutely morally binding? Even if the cases of words from God that do not direct me to do something... Are they not still inherently and instantly universally morally binding in that believers must affirm that they are God's words and must believe them? Does not the very existence of tests of prophecy underscore the fact that if it is a word from God at all, people are obliged to embrace it appropriately? Okay. So with that, might as well let the music run out. And there we're all right. So with that, uh, without any further ado, here is Bob Guiglione and 2020 Vision. Here we go. Uh, just about this time every Sunday, I say open your Bibles to a particular book, and we get underway with our Bible study. But not this Sunday. We do that 51 weeks of the year. I like to set aside one week every year, usually in January or February, to share with you the vision of our church, where I believe God is leading us, not only this year. But beyond. So you got that. So what he be, where he where he believes God is leading them, direct, direct revelation from God. And uh, I think vision talks are really important for the years preceding our move to Brandywine Drive. The building was a big part of our vision. It wasn't the only part. It was a big part. And as you look around now, that vision became a reality, mostly because of everyone in this room. 
so this day is really important, and we've been doing this for the better part of 10 years. If you're a guest this morning, please come back. Come back and hear David Kim. Now, those of you who grew up in evangelicalism and have been around as long as I have, okay, I'm in my mid-40s, can you recall prior to the rise of the seeker-driven movement, any time during a church service, you know, at any regular intervals, where the pastor would cast vision. I mean, this is a new innovation, isn't it? Uh, next week, I'll be interviewing him. He'll share his testimony. He's going to play for us. And uh, the following week, we'll start the book of Acts verse by verse. I'm very excited to go through that book on a Sunday morning in light of a lot of things I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, but what I want to talk to you about this morning is what we're calling Vision 2020. What does that mean? Well, it was actually a title that was suggested by the youngest member of our leadership team. Uh, we had been meeting for several months on these issues, and finally this person came up with the idea, and there was like a silence in the room, and it really fit. So I want to unpack what Vision 2020 means in three parts. The first one's really easy. You're, you all understand it already. Uh, the first part of Vision 2020 is the ability to see clearly. Okay, that's what we understand. If someone has 20-20 vision, they have perfect eyesight. If God calls you to lead anything, if he puts it on your heart to start something brand new, the leader's ability to see clear and unabated is critical. Do you ever have that situation? Now, keep this in mind. If you see this vision clearly, and this is clearly God telling you to do it, anybody who opposes you is opposing the will of God where you got up a little later and you're running behind and, you know, the traffic's facing you and you're going to be late for work, and then you run out to your car and it's frosted over. And because it's late and you don't want to go into the car and get the scraper, uh, you pull out the old credit card or maybe your badge, and you make one of those little round holes about eight inches in circumference, and you get in your car and you blast the defroster, and then you make it out of the development looking through that little people there, right? Not a good idea. We've all probably done it, right? Great chance for an amen there, right? Yeah, we've all probably done it, right? I admit it. It's one of the reasons why air traffic is so safe in our country. They take all the decision-making out of the pilot's hands, right? Can you imagine if you were sitting back in the cabin and the pilot came on and said, this is your captain speaking, we're going to get you out on time, that's the good news, but the co-pilot is out right now defrosting the plane with his credit card. Wouldn't be a good idea, right? So clear and unabated vision for any organization is very critical. Now when it comes to vision in the Bible, the greatest visionary in all the Bible is who? It's not Abraham, it's not Nehemiah, it's not even Jesus, it's God himself. Whoa. Um, okay, that's some bad Christology. Holy smokes. Um, okay, we got a problem there. Um, the greatest visionary in all the Bible isn't Abraham, it isn't the prophets, it isn't the apostles, it isn't Jesus, but it's God himself. Who do you think Jesus is, Pastor? God in human flesh? Now, here's the deal. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. This is straight up eisegesis, okay? And and what I here's why I, I will make the claim, okay? If you're rightly handling God's word, you are engaging in what's called exegesis. Exegesis means to read out what God has put into the scriptures, okay? Eisegesis, from the Greek preposition ice, 
means to read in to the text. So you're going to read something into the text. So here's the deal. Show me from a clear passage in clear, unambiguous words where we are taught about vision casting or taught that God is a big visionary. I can tell you what this is, by the way, that you're listening to. This is the business principles that are that's taught in pop at popular level business books, leadership books, and well stuff that's been influenced by Peter Drucker, okay? This is a mixing uh you know a hybrid if you would, a hybrid of business level concepts being melded into the church, okay? Where they don't belong, okay? And uh, and the idea here, the assumption is, is that what's good for businesses and successful businesses is is good for the church too. You got to understand this about leadership. Okay, there are many different models of leadership. Okay, there's team leadership, there's servant leadership, there is top-down military chain of command leadership. There's all kinds of different leadership models out there. And depending on the kind of organization that you're in, that might dictate what best what, what leadership model would work best in your particular organization. Um, and it just it's not a one-size-fits-all. Does that make sense? Okay. So, for instance, we don't run a, an organization like we do a military chain of command kind of thing. You know, when you when you go to work at you know maybe Kraft or you know pick some major Fortune 500 company, you know the per- people coming in at the bottom levels are not called privates, and the people you know in the, in management are not called lieutenants and officers, and and then you've got the uh, you know going all the way up to <laughs> you understand what I'm saying. You know, it might seem like it's organized that way. Yes, there's some hierarchy to it, but they don't actually follow a strict chain of command type of leadership model. Okay, but what we're hearing here is a corporate, you know, Fortune 500 popular level business leadership model being smuggled into the church where it really has no business of being because God in his word has already told us the leadership model that's to be employed and put into practice and used in the church. And it's not a business model. It is not corporate leadership. It's not, it's not, no, in fact, it's servant leadership with its closest model to, you know, as far as what it looks like is a shepherd caring for sheep. Not very sexy, that's for sure. Not very, um, well, efficient at all. In fact, it's inefficient. It's painstakingly hard. It's time consuming. It requires watchfulness to make sure that the the you know that the sheep are being cared for properly, that they're eating correctly, oh, and protecting them from dangerous wolves and things like that. That's the leadership model that uh, goes with the pastoral office that God has instituted. Not this. This is a different business model. So what he's doing at this point is he's reading into the text, eisegeting this vision-casting concept, even though there's no biblical passages that clearly teach this. He's engaging in eisegesis and mishandling the text. Because in the pages of Genesis open in chapter 1, God comes and he has a vision to create the earth, to create human beings who will be made in his image. And for six days, God... Genesis chapter 1 is not about a vision that God has. It's about God creating. Nowhere in the text does it talk about God's vision. 
speaks forth the creation. Every day it's good. He creates humanity. He puts a man and a woman together and he gives them this vision. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. Now notice what he did there. Okay, God spoke directly to Adam and Eve, giving them a command. Be fruitful and multiply. Notice that he equated that to them receiving a vision from God. And that's what vision casting is all about. Receiving a direct command from God as to what it is that he wants you to do. It's important. We continue. What a vision statement. Now that plan was marred because of sin. So God has another vision. He calls a man named Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Look at chapter 15 sometime. Abraham, you're going you're to be the father of a nation. There's going to be a nation on this earth that I'm going to give my covenant to and my word to. There's going to be a house of worship there. And they're going to be a light to every other nation. And people are going to come from everywhere and worship. And righteousness will emanate from this place. What a vision. Powerful, measurable. God gave him the borders of this country. Exciting. Powerful, measurable. Corporate metrics here. You can't have a vision that you can't measure. This is why nickels and noses are so important in the seeker-driven movement. Jesus comes along. He picks 12 ragtag followers, men. He doesn't tell them on the first day, build a church. He says, follow me. Just follow me. And they followed him for three years, and they saw blind eyes open, deaf ears. People could hear. They saw the gospel preached like they had never heard before. And they had, they had an understanding of God's grace and who God was. And after that understanding and training, he laid this on men who had never left the country, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all the world, the known world. That's a vision to die for. That's a scintillating vision that Jesus gave those men. Now, the clearest verse... I want to point this out. If we're to talk about the Great Commission as a mission and vision statement, understand this. It's still binding on every pastor. God hasn't given a new one. All scripture about vision is Proverbs 29, 18. You all know it. Where there is no vision, what? People perish. That's why vision is important. Okay, now, by the way, that's a fast and loose uh, mishandling. Uh, hang on a second. Did he say Proverbs 29? Hang on a second here. I got I think he said Proverbs 29, 18. Yeah, here it is. Okay. Proverbs 29, 18 is, is a classic passage that's ripped from context in order to basically create the impression that the Bible teaches the importance of vision casting. Okay, by the way, this is not talking about receiving direct revelation from God by a pastor to cast the vision then to the masses in their congregation. It's not what's going on here. Let, let me Well, let me show this to you. Proverbs 29, verse 16. We'll add a little bit of context. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. Verse 17. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. Verse 18. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. That's verse 19. So here's the, here's the deal. Verse 18, it's important to note this, 
that it gives the problem and the solution in the same verse, and he missed the solution. Where there is no prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. And this is in the context of talking about the increase of wickedness in the world. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Aha! The law is the prophetic vision that keeps people from casting off restraint. Where do we find that? In the Bible. So this not talking about where there is no direct revelation from God, just talking about you know willy-nilly kind of stuff here, but where do we go to find direct revelation from God in his written word? So yeah, he's playing fast and loose here with the with the uh the text. Two visionaries, one in the Bible, one not in the Bible, who really uh make this scripture analogous. And the first is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books just because it has a leadership bias. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Now, Nehemiah is the favorite uh, book of the Bible for seeker-driven pastors, but it doesn't teach vision casting. And, yeah, there's some examples that you can follow from a leadership model, but see, here's the deal. This is not why this book was made. Persia, Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world. He has a very prominent position. It would be like a cabinet position in the White House today. He is a Jew, but he's never been to Jerusalem. His great-great-grandparents were taken captive by the Babylonian king, and now Persia rules the world. But he's risen up, like many Jews, to a place of prominence. And things are going well for Nehemiah until one day a man comes from Jerusalem, and he says, hey, how are things going back in the motherland? And the guy says, well... Really not good. This is Nehemiah chapter 1. He said, the people are in distress, the, the walls torn down, the gates are burning. In other words, people are perishing in Jerusalem. The Bible says that Nehemiah sat down and he wept, and he wept for days. Then he did something about it. He fasted and he prayed. I want to read you his prayer. It is so God-honoring. He said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which he said, which we have sinned against you. This man has never been in Israel. He was never part of the idolatry of his people. And he begins to pray a prayer where he reminds God of God's faithfulness and God's vision for the nation of Israel. He goes on in this prayer and he says, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy This day in the sight of the king, Nehemiah wants to do something about this situation. And of course, he goes to the king and asks for resources. He asks for a leave of absence, and he takes a crew of people back. And you know the story, he rebuilds the wall, and it's just a miraculous event, and we love to preach from Nehemiah. The other man is non-biblical. His name is Martin Luther King, one of my heroes. Dr. Martin Luther King spent his life trying to convince people that there was a better way in this country to handle race relations. To the black people of his generation, he told them he had a dream. 
that one day there would be an America where people would no longer be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We're living in the reality of that dream. We're not a perfect country. There's still race problems in this country. But we are living in the reality of one man's vision that life could be better. And I want you to think of our world, this country, and the world if these two men had never existed. Now, God would always find somebody else, I believe. God is sovereign. See, Nehemiah didn't go back to build a wall. He went back to build a dream. A dream of one day people coming to Solomon's temple. He came one day for people worshiping from all over the world. He came one day because he knew the veil would be torn in two and that Jesus would rise from the dead and that Calvary Chapel would take Bible tours one day to the land. That's why he went back, for God's grand dream. People like Martin Luther King gave their life for their vision. Another way to quote Proverbs 29.18 is, where there is no revelation, where there's no high view of God's involvement in your life, people cast off restraint. In other words, when God... Notice the interpretation is sans written word. It's without the written word. This is ridiculous. The text itself makes it clear that it's referring to the law, which is the written word of God. Not in the equation, people do whatever they want. That's what the scripture says. Where there's no God-honoring vision. Uh, It's been my experience in 28 years of a Christian that there's no greater thing than sitting under a God-honoring vision, a movement where people are being saved and God's changing lives and things are being accomplished for the kingdom. There's no greater thing. When churches get fuzzy about why they exist, when they have no clear targets on the wall, no gates of hell they're breaking down, no goals, no strategies for reaching people in their community, no staff and volunteers working long hours, fasting and praying for the mind of the Spirit, people will perish. Now listen, clearly, people aren't going to die. Fasting and praying for the mind of the Spirit, direct revelation without the Word of God. You want to know the mind of the Spirit, read the biblical text. I think something worse is going to happen. Uh, there's a story, true story, and you can still visit a museum today if you go to New England, about a volunteer organization um, that existed called the Life Saving Society. This is a true, true uh, volunteer organization uh, off the coast of New England. If you've ever been to New England, they have a very rocky coast. Uh, they get a lot of storms up there and a lot of shipwrecks. So this organization came together, the life-saving organization, with the idea is that they would help these seafaring captains out. And so they built these small huts along the shore that they would stock with food and equipment, and they called them huts of refuge. Now, these were mostly volunteers who watched the coast. Watched the coast. They looked out for ships that were in disaster. And because it was such a perilous job, they had a motto, you, don't have, to, you have to go out, you don't have to come back. Again, these people were volunteers, but because they knew it was serious, they were risking everything to save human life. No money, no recognition, no power, just the cause. Well, something happened along the continuum of time. Uh, The United States launched the U.S. Coast Guard. And over time, these volunteers worked side by side with the Coast Guard. And then after a while, the motto was like, well, let the professionals do it. They're equipped, they get paid, let them risk their lives because that's their job. 
Now, funny thing happened. The volunteers never disbanded. Isn't that amazing? They still gathered. They still had lunch and dinner together. They even had award ceremonies. They played games. They just didn't go out and try and save lives anymore. This is the, uh, the analogy that Ed Young has made popular. And that's my greatest fear for the church. When we turn everything over to the professionals, when we lose vision and the idea where God's taking us, we start to perish. We won't die. We just atrophy. And we give our great time, talent, and everything God's put in us for the glory of a corporation. I know you got to work jobs. Notice the swipe against the vocation that God has called you to. And that bugs me, by the way, but I know you do. I wish you could all work here. But we can't all work here. Ephesians 4.12, uh, pastors, prophets, evangelists, building up people for the work of the ministry. There's no greater joy in my spirit when you walk in your giftedness and when the professionals walk side by side with volunteers. We don't want to have a country club atmosphere here where we argue over buildings and budgets, secret agendas, no leadership development, and people perish. I think we need this one day for a clear and compelling vision that's spirit-inspired and God-honoring what he's called us all to do. The idea is that we can walk in unity and walk in agreement, and God said there's no greater thing than to see his people unified. Uh, One other scripture from Jesus. He said before a man ever would build a city, before he would go to war, he would count the cost. And so, uh, as we put forth our vision, this isn't willy-nilly. It isn't, oh, God, you know, part the Red Sea. This is the Spirit of God is leading us. And we've counted the cost. And if God wants to change direction, great. Second part of this idea of Vision 2020 is in that two years, our church will be 20 years old. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. And that's quite a milestone. What a myopic view. The church is how old? The church is 2,000 years old. And here they're, you know, they're whooping and hollering about their 20 years as an individual congregation. Myopic view. We're here. Uh, we beat the odds. 85% of all brand new church plants fail or never have more than 150 members. So all the glory to God that we're even here. Notice if you have a congregation, well, of less than 150 members, that's in the same category as a fail. Huh. Interesting. And the idea that we're 20 years old has positives and it has negatives. Do you want the positives first or the negatives? Yeah, you always get the positive first. Okay, so um, let's talk about the positives. Look up at this graph. And if you've been around CCDC for a long time, you have seen this chart somewhere along the way. And uh, until God takes me away, we'll always look at this. This is the life cycle of organizations. And by the way, the church is an organization. We are an organism, right? We are an organic group of people that love Jesus Christ and you know, want to see him change lives and give us a mission. We are organic. But the moment you collect $1, you're an organization, okay? And I know there's people out there Well, I don't like organized religion. Don't worry about it. We're not as organized as you think, okay? (laughs) So this is the life cycle of any organization. So you start with a birth, right? 
somebody or a team of people have an idea. We're going to start a church. We're going to make a difference. And you pray about it and you plan. And then one day, with fear and trembling, you get in the car. And I remember that day. Why would anybody come to our church? Right? There's a million churches. Why do they come to this church? And you go and you start and it's like birthing a baby. You know, this dream is a reality and you're scrubbing floors and, and you're starting. And we have so many stories from the early years. Um, it's so humorous. I remember in the old Barnstormers Theater in Ridley Park, 1993, uh, we were in this antiquated theater we were paying $50 for and $50 for the, uh, meeting hall, the beef and beer across the street where the children's ministry was. And uh, if you ever complain about our children's ministry, I will personally walk you through that beef and beer, okay? I still have pictures of Pastor Steve behind this uh, table with all the liquor from the night before, trying to get it all cleaned up before people arrive with their children. But anyway, so I remember one time we're in the Barnstormers Theater, and literally there's water up to our knees in the basement, and the heat's not on, and it's the dead of winter. And we're like, Ivey, what are we going to do? And uh, so we're down there, and we have guys turning wrenches. And finally, we hear something happen. And one of the guys turns to me, and it's about a minute before I have to go up and preach. And he says, here's what's going to happen. You're either going to get heat, or it's going to blow. <laughs> so I go up, and I start preaching, and it's getting warm. And I'm hearing these sounds, radiators pinging. And I'm trying to preach, and the only thing going through my mind is, we're either going to get heat, or it's going to blow. And in my mind, I'm like, what does blow look like, right? Uh, one time we were locked out of the building. We had no keys. Uh, the drummer and me were the first one there. We broke in through a window. One time we had to drive around the neighborhood looking for the man who had the keys. I mean, that, that, that's birth, infancy. And then you get to childhood. Childhood is where you think, all right, God's in this. We can walk a little. We kind of know what we're doing. Things were a little easier in this time. We made decisions right in the hallway. Uh, the offering, we would take the offering. Our treasurer would count the money in the kitchen, slide it in his top snap. Okay, let me explain something to you. This is, again, uh, popular level business type concepts. This has to do with the uh, uh, corporate life cycles or the life cycles of a corporation. And so, you know, it, you know, it basically looks like a bell curve. You know, you got your beginning, your maturity, and then you peak out and start to decline. And the, you know, and the, I, the concept in the corporate world, especially what they teach at business school is, uh, that, you know, the, the job of the leaders in a corporation is to keep the, keep from going over the edge and experiencing decline, but to, constantly find a way to renew the organization to keep it young, if you would. Um, so this is corporate life cycles talk going on here regarding an individual congregation. And then listen to the message. Now, if you see anybody put the offering in their pocket today, alert somebody. You know, we're past childhood now. Then you get to adolescence. That's where you're adding staff. And you know how awkward adolescence is, right? And for years, for years, when I would draw this for our leaders, I would tell them, because they would always say, well, where do you think we are? And I would always say, if this is adulthood, we're right here. And I used to say we were there for like five years. Because I believed until we had a facility, uh, we would always be there. We we could never walk in our giftedness. Now, God doesn't need buildings. I understand that. But he's done great things in buildings. 
But now we're here. And when we got here, we had two jam services that first Sunday. We did a Beth Moore for 850 women, fed 450 of them. And we were off and running. We used every crack and crevice of this building. We are in adulthood. Now, what is adulthood? Adulthood is when you're finally doing what you always thought you would do. See, you start with a dream at birth. It's only a dream. And in the dream, you're so enjoying the now, but you have a vision, a preferred picture of the future. Adulthood is when you're walking in that picture. Sometimes on my lunch break, I'll come up and sit in the cafe. And uh, I look out the window and I'm like, Lord, is this a dream or is it reality? Are we really here? I mean, we were in so many makeshift facilities. With, with I could tell you stories till the cows come home. Uh, I remember when Pastor Steve walked me out on this land. I looked at him and said, I wish I was 25 years old. Because the possibilities that God could do here are endless. And there are days I just look out the window and say, God, I, I, are we even here? So adulthood is where we are. Now, the bad part of this chart is the downslope. Middle age, the graying years. Old age, death. The life-saving society started saving people. Now there's yacht clubs all along the New England coast. No one's ever beat. What's weird about this is is that there's no concept of the Catholicity of the church. I don't mean Roman Catholic. What I mean by Catholicity, small c, is the universality of the church. Here it is just their individual congregation, its particular life cycle, its specific so-called vision from God. And, uh, I mean, it's there's some kind of, you know, little oasis completely separate from and distinct from the greater body of Christ. Th- this is bizarre. Trajectory without a lot of intentionality. Another good part about our adulthood is our leadership. This, is, this fascinates me. Uh, we basically have uh, the same core leadership team from the day we started. There, there are some of us who have been here for the whole run. Others came on a little later. Obviously, we need new blood and people from the outside. But our basic leadership team is intact. That astounds me. 18 years in a time where people move every seven years and take better jobs. And uh, that just amazes me. The mix of talent and giftedness and personalities uh, just blesses me. One of the cool things is we're starting to be attractive to people who want to make ministry their vocation. People are knocking on our door now, uh, seeing if they can work here. And then I want to talk about my leadership in adulthood. Um, I feel like I'm just getting started. I really do. And I don't say that because it's vision day. I say that because that's what I feel in my spirit. You know, I don't have little kids at home anymore, so I have a lot more free time. And um, I'm going to be 50 in November. And on my iPhone, on the little notes thing, one day I, I had to kill some time. And, and I jotted down everything I had done in my 20s. And then I put down everything I had done in my 30s. And then everything I had done in my 40s. And then I just left the 50s blank. And through the year, I'm going to start putting some goals in there. But God's given me a lot of vision. 
I feel like I'm wiser, smarter. I know the Bible better. I understand the landscape of Christianity better. And I have a desire to grow as a leader. So, as I said, when we were building this building, this building is in the end. This is the launching pad. And we're starting to see God expand our borders. One more positive of being 20 years old, we have a great farm system. For those of you who know baseball, you have the minor leagues. And we have a great minor league system. Many of them sit on this front row. Many of them are going to be our future worship leaders, future staff. A lot of them already lead in incredible ways. And it's exciting to see them develop uh, the negatives, the negatives. Uh, You know what happens in middle age in the graying years? It's not the way we do things around here. Boy, I hope we can bypass that. I hope we can stick to values, but bypass, that's not the way we do things here. Uh, This is just hypocritical because I guarantee you, if you say something against the vision, they're going to say that's not the vision God has given us. Same concept. I hope we would be open to new ideas and new wine, fresh move of the spirit. Here's a negative. I'm not sh- New wine, fresh move of the spirit. Uh-huh. Sure, the Calvary movement is a movement anymore. Now, I want to be real clear on this because I know some people are going to pass this down the line. When I came to Calvary Chapel in the late 80s, we would go to pastor's conferences. And men like Ken Graves or David LeCompte would get up and share what was going on in Bangor, Maine, or in the Ukraine, in youth camps. And my heart would jump out of my chest. And I would go up to these guys and say, you got to come to our church. you got to tell people about this. And these people have been my lifelong friends. Problem is, no one shares those stories at our conferences anymore. Now, I'm not saying... Uh, I know the answers. I'm just saying Calvary's more than 40 years old. And if they don't pray and ask for God's intervention, they're going to be part of the life cycle. Something we all need to think about. And then I'm concerned about this negative, what I call 10-plusers. Here's the idea. If you've been at Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, more than 10 years, here's what every study I've ever read tells us. The longer you're here, the less effective we are to your spiritual growth. The longer you're here, the less effective we are to your spiritual growth. When you come, maybe it's because you're not doing ministry right. I mean, serious. Everything's new. It's fresh. You love what God's doing, and then everything gets familiar. The only way to beat that curve is to get out of the pew and begin to serve and lead and find your niche, and then you can stay here forever. The 10 plusers I'm most concerned about are the empty nesters. People, you know, the year I'm entering, 50 plus. Where they've raised kids and now they're getting these weird ideas of timeshares and golf in Arizona and, and in a time where they could leverage the greatest amount of their time and freedom for the gospel, they're losing their minds. Yeah, you know, thinking about retirement. So I want to engage these people, and and part of it's our fault. You know, you can't take somebody 50-plus with great skills and passion and tell them to hand out bulletins on Sunday morning, okay? So we got to do a better job finding compelling things for them to do and then launching them out in that. 
One final bad study. There's a study out that says churches can grow and be effective until about a 25-year plateau. Now, we're seven years away from that. That's good news. Uh, but I hate when people tell me things like that. Now, I hate when people say, well, this is about as good. No, that makes me want to crash through that barrier. So just to make sure not everything's negative, how do you beat the curve? This is how I think you beat the curve. By having new births at the top. New births. Okay, I want to point something out. How do you beat the curve? I think you beat the curve by X, Y, or Z. This isn't a biblical teaching. This is popular level business organizational theory. At the top. New dreams. New wine. New vision. God inspiring new things. And, and here's what's grand about God doing that in adulthood. There's more of us. There's more resources. There's more of a catalyzing effort. We, these are the good old days. We've never been in this place. This is a grand day. And by God's grace, I pray that we can beat this trajectory and beat the 25-year study and see God do great things. One final point of Vision 2020. In eight years, it'll be the year 2020. If you're my age, that sounds like the Jetsons. I mean, give me a break, 2020. Anyway, 2020 is eight years away. And so as I've been praying and as our team's been praying, we're feeling like God's about to break through. And I'm not somebody that says that. In fact, if you go back, I've never said that. But not only am I saying it, others are saying it. Um, there's just a sense that God wants to break through. Well, if God wants to break through, why doesn't he just do it? He's God. So what I'm going to lay out for you is probably an eight-year vision of what I think God has for us. It's not a sexy vision. It's not as measurable as people would like. I was listening to one church leader talking about their vision. He said, oh, yeah, for the first 10 years it was, you know, our city and the next 10 years, it was the nation. And the next 10 years, it was the world. And then the interviewer said, what are you going to do in the next 10 years? He goes, intergalactic. Yeah. So it's not going to be that wowing or metrics or anything like that. Because, again, I think this is all emerging. So I want to walk you through a couple things where, where I think God is leading us at a high level. And the first is prayer. Now, you can listen to a lot of vision talks, and you almost never hear this. Do you know why? It's not because people don't want to pray or they believe prayer is not effective. It's because prayer is something that's generally understood, right? So if you're a football player, it's probably understood that you lift weights. Um, so if you're a Christian, you pray, right? Jesus said when you pray, not if you pray. Leaders should pray. Sub-ministries should be praying. It's just embedded, Right? Well, the reason I made it first on our list, because this is what God's doing at a very high level. And it did not start with me, by the way. It started with the women on our staff who every Tuesday in our old building would go into a room at lunch hour and pray. They were praying about women's ministry. They were praying for us. They were praying about things I was complaining about. And something interesting happened over time. Things I was anxious about or trying to solve were starting to be answered. 
And one day the light bulb went off. They prayed. Prayer. Just about that time, Jim Maxim comes along, wants to lead a prayer initiative here. You all know Jim's story. He's written a book. Um, he's the impetus for our 21 days of fasting and prayer in uh, fasting and prayer in January. Zach Koshy comes along. Uh, Zach is Indian and represents a brand new Indian population we have here. Uh, Zach is a praying man, and all of a sudden we have this prayer bubbling up in our fellowship. Now, I said earlier that that prayer is embedded into the life of the church. And what we're trying to to manage here, and that's probably a bad word, is a culture of prayer. That's what we want to see established. Maybe that'll spill over into your life, your family, your business, a culture of prayer. We have a prayer room up there. It's not a place to go and get prayer. It can be. It's praying people praying for this service and the next service that God would move. We had 21 days of prayer. We have prodigal prayer. But my greatest learning on prayer came from Jim Cimbala and a lunch we had this year. Where Jim Cimbala said, every church leader needs to figure out what God wants them to do. And so I have a lot of pressure to start a prayer night. And Yeah, you don't figure that out by opening up your Bible, apparently. You, you know, you got to somehow pray and then receive a direct revelation. Uh-huh. Start all these mechanisms, and I won't until I know God's in it. And then we're going to launch out. When I read the book of Acts, and I've read, I've read it all ready because that's what we're going to be in in a few weeks. Prayer was a big part of the early church. It wasn't the only part. It was a big part. Prayer was the lifeblood of the early church. It was habitual. They had a common place. I think I know why. Because in John 15, Jesus said, look, you can't do anything without me. Especially after he laid that mission statement on them. Go into all the world. They became a praying people. It was embedded into their culture. Kenneth Gangle writes this. He said, the outstanding thing about those men in the book of Acts is that they were not outstanding. God chose ordinary men to do an extraordinary task. And when you think about self-sufficiency versus God-sufficiency, there was no greater scripture than the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. When he said, brethren, consider your calling, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the spies God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. I just got back from Minnesota to a conference with a lot of reformed, people, men that hold a reformed theology. And the teaching was wonderful. The worship was great. Every man that gets up, I mean, it takes a half hour to explain all the degrees he has and all the seminaries he teaches at. There's nothing wrong with that. And I love being in those environments because I love what God's doing in that stream. And then I just sit there and think about the eight or nine Calvary chapels, by the way, that are the, the there's eight or nine that are the largest 100 churches in the country. Eight or nine of them are Calvary chapels where the men who pastor those churches would not be pastors if that's the stream they had to come through. just blows my mind and reminds me of what Paul was trying to communicate. So 
God is kind of building a passion for prayer into our hearts. And again, I don't know where that will lead. It'll lead somewhere this year where it will become habitual and a commonplace for everyone in this church. And I pray that you join in with us. Second thing I want to talk to you about is our services. What we're doing right now, Sunday morning. Um, When we were ready to move to this facility, I share with our staff that when we started the church, this is all we did. We did church, and then we went out and went to somebody's home. Basically, that's still my life today. Church, and then go live life with people. Now, that's a little more complex today. Can't do it with everyone. Hopefully, everybody's doing it with somebody, and, you know, some people fall through the cracks, and we try and solve those problems. So I told our staff, look, we're in adulthood. We have sub-ministries. We have about 18 sub-ministries, but we're going to put our focus back on Sunday morning because when I look at it, Sunday morning is the funnel. You know, you have a funnel. See, everybody comes to Sunday morning. Everybody. Everybody's here. The family's here. And then we funnel out and do what God has us to do. The funnel has to be strong. This is the engine. This is the engine because this is where we come. And just picture a retractable roof where the heavens open and the glory of God comes and rests for some strange reason on what he has ordained, this thing called the church, where God has asked us to gather at least once a week that he might be intimate with us and that we might hear from the king. That's been going on for 2,000 years, by the way. That's why preaching and worship has been the hallmark of the church. It's Every time we do it, we validate our existence. This is what Jesus told us to do. So when we come here on Sunday morning, we want worship that honors God and inspires people. We're committed to teach through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. I was in Florida celebrating my wedding anniversary with my wife, Monica, and uh, we were flipping through one of those books. We wanted to get out on a boat, and they were really expensive, but we found a sailboat that would only take six couples, and it was only $50 each, so uh, it was called a champagne cruise. So we get to this boat, and we hop on, and, and I almost fell backwards because the two other couples were in their 20s. And we were staying at this complex where we were the youngest by 20 years, okay? All the snowbirds that go to Florida. So we're like, wow, we haven't seen 20-year-olds in four days. This is awesome. And minding my own business, the guy puts the sails up and we head out. And uh, this girl in her 20s, I, I would never believe she would ask this this early. So what do you do for a living? Oh, the dreaded question. And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. She said, oh, what kind of church? I said, well, Calvary Chapel, we're non-denominational. She said, what's that? I said, that means we're not like, well, we are hooked in with it. Uh, I, I did not explain it, but I, you know, did the best I could. And uh, she said, well, the only reason I'm asking is I'm Jewish. And I just got back from Israel on one of those free deals where they have Jewish young people go back so they'll move back to the land. And I thought, boy, this is a setup. <laughs> this is a real setup. And uh, I was so honored to say, hey, you would fit in at our church. We just got back from Israel. And I just preached through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so uh, I don't want anybody to think here that we hop through the Bible. We really don't. 
After I finished Deuteronomy, I realized that we had to become a New Testament church. So we started John, and then we're going to Acts, and then it'll be 1 Corinthians all the way through Revelation. And on Wednesday night, we'll dip back and we'll start Joshua. So we're going through, even though it may not look that way. We're committed to teaching you the whole counsel of God's word, not beating some evangelical drum or doctrine. We're going to give you the whole counsel of God's word, and of course, we'll do series along the way. Sunday morning's critical. It's where you're doing the work of the ministry outside of here and inviting people, and we all come through this funnel, and then God expands us. Third thing I want to talk to you about is the Christian school. We've talked about this for years. Okay, we'll, we'll stop there. This is starting to sound like a business meeting at this point. And there's a reason why it sounds like a business meeting. Because this is corporate practices. The practices that have been developed in the modern corporations within the last 50 to 60 years uh, by such business gurus as Peter Drucker and others that basically is now found its way into the church. But then again, um, here's the problem. Vision casting, which is what you were hearing here, is taught in as clearly in Scripture as prayers to the Virgin Mary. Yeah, in fact, this concept that the pastor is supposed to receive a direct vision for a particular thing that their particular congregation is supposed to do and then cast it out, you will find as many verses telling you to pray to the Virgin Mary as you will find verses that tell pastors to do this. Which is why I let off the program today with um, William Tapley and his Marian apparitions at Lisette. Why? Because none of this is taught in Scripture. This, In fact, this leadership model is contradicted straight up by what God's Word reveals the leadership model should be for the pastoral office. And he reveals it in his Word. What's the excuse for this? Well, we've got a vision from God. We have to obey that vision. Which is why... I read to you what Dan Phillips wrote. All of this, this entire ecclesiastical model is based on the idea that the pastor receives a specific vision from God. He's to cast the vision. The people in the congregation are to get behind the vision and make it possible and make it happen. If you contradict the vision, you are to be disciplined and run out on a rail. And don't try to bring the Bible in. Say, wait a second, the scripture doesn't teach this. Ah, ha, ha, it doesn't matter. We've got a direct connection to God teaching us that this is what we're supposed to do. Folks, this is a bad tree, and it bears bad fruit. It can't help but bear bad fruit. Why? This is not the ecclesiastical model established by Jesus Christ and revealed in God's word. This is a foreign entity with foreign practices and and concepts that are just not taught in Scripture at all. And like I said, you will find as many verses teaching this as you will find verses telling you to pray to the Virgin Mary. Scary stuff. Important that you hear it. 
Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. The one that says Donate, uh, when you click on that, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And Pirate Christian Radio, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to... Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.